this privilege of, of introducing one of the stars of the new generation of art historians. I wanted to welcome the graduate students who are attending this conference and to promise you that within the next decade or half decade, you're very likely to be at this podium. It happens far more quickly than you will realize. I Many of you have heard this story, and so I hope you will forgive me as I tell it to our graduate student guests. But my very first trip to New Orleans was as a graduate student in Cooperstown, New York, in the dead of winter when there's about 30 feet of snow and you haven't seen your car since September 30th and you won't see it again until April 1st. Whenever a professor came into the classroom and said, we have scholarships for you to attend a program in, before they said where, so we just, three of us in particular put our hands up. So two of my classmates and I found our way uh, that we were going to be attending the Natchez Pilgrimage Garden Club's Antiques Forum. And that is where I met Jeanette Feltus, and what fun it is to have that friendship still going strong after one of those many years. My travel mates were Connie Collins from Suffern Park, New York, and Jane Stokes from Canterbury, New Hampshire. Neither of them had ever been south of the Mason-Dixon line, and we were on our way to New Orleans and Natchez. I had just finished the Adam Summer School in England, and one of my classmates was Dodi Plateau of the Historic New Orleans Collection. I loved Dodi, and I rang her up and said, Dodi, where can three graduate students stay in New Orleans and have all the atmosphere but have a graduate student tariff? And she said, well, you need to get to the Lot House Hotel. So I rang them up and said very articulately, I will require two rooms, please, one for two young ladies to share and one for a single gentleman. And the boys came back at the opposite end of the phone. Baby, all I got left is Carl and Harris sweet. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> well, that was a magical introduction <laughs> to New Orleans. And we were all, personally, we were, we were very close, and there, there was a large sofa for me to use, and a rather large fruit malar desk bed. We didn't know it was Massachusetts back then. And uh, so we had wonderful photographs taken of the three of us, mostly fully clothed with blanket in this bed up to our noses. Then we were off to Natchez, and these two young ladies put on their requisite black cocktail dress, their single string of pearls. And Jeanette, that was when Natchez was really hot live, and people were going to Paris for dinner on Saturday night in their planes, and then coming back, remember those days? And we were staying uh, at Mistletoe, and these two young ladies went to put their luggage into the closet, and were literally knocked over by pilgrimage crinolins coming out of the closet. <laughs> they were in therapy for about a year after that, that visit. I hope they did that, so I teach the thing they embraced New Orleans and Natchez. And how, how can you not? Well, we have somebody speaking next who Birmingham has certainly embraced. I had the privilege of being at the Birmingham Museum of Art very recently and seeing some of Grant's brief installations, and they are really, really thoughtful and beautiful and substantive. Graham Betcher is the William Carey Holsey Curator of American Art at the Birmingham Museum of Art in Alabama. 
He received his PhD from Yale University, his MA from the University of Washington, and his BA from Yale University. His area of expertise is American Vine and Decker Barnes, made before 1945. Did the Electrolux just make it? He was telling me about the Garvin collection actually accessible at Yale, accessing the Electrolux vacuum cleaner that had been used to clean the Garvin collection, a great example of modern design. Graham arrived in Birmingham in 2006, holding um, the title of Blues Foundation Curatorial Fellow of American Art until 2008. He previously worked at the Yale University Art Gallery, where he was a Marshall Brady Tucker Graduate Curatorial Research Fellow. Graham has also held fellowships at the Hammond Carter Museum in Fort Worth and the Terra Foundation Summer Residency in Jumerian, France. Among the many exhibitions, Graham has curated or framing a nation portraits of the Founding Fathers from the Vestibel Warner Museum of American Art in 2006, Prague Knights, Czech Modern Art from the Hasco Collection 2007, Sea Fever, American Art and the Aquatic Imagination, that's the way it's in 2007, and Body Image, American Art and Human War, 2009. He's currently working on an exhibition of Georgian-era English high miniatures titled The Look of Love, and a survey of the Viking Vermont style in American Art. We all look forward to that. Today, his topic is Paris on the Bayou, the French artistic presence on the Gulf Coast. Please join me in welcoming Grand Bachelor. Uh, states, but I had the feeling that I would find a lot more. 
French artists working outside of, uh, outside of uh, Louisiana and New Orleans. And uh, I did find a few others, but not as many as I thought I would. And so, as much as I will talk about those uh, French-born artists that I did find working in the Deep South, I'll also talk a little bit about why I believe that there weren't more working outside the confines of the state of Louisiana. So, to get the ball rolling, uh, suffice it to say, research uh, on the art of Louisiana in the 19th century is light years ahead of research on what was going on in Mississippi and Alabama at the same time. And a lot of that is due to the really significant uh, research of Jesse Pesch, of course, but also due to one particular artist, an artist who garnered uh, the attention of museums and of art historians early on, uh, namely Jean-Joseph Bodicham. Uh, he emerged as an early subject of interest for several factors. Uh, one of these, and maybe the most important, being the high quality of his work. Exceptional artists are always the first to garner scholarly attention. Uh, you, that way the scholar doesn't have to justify his interest in a particular artist. Uh, you, you see it firsthand for yourself. Uh, second reason is the fact that there's a substantial body of extant work uh, which, to, which to study. And then finally, uh, he left a rather decent paper trail, relatively speaking. There are still some details of his life uh, yet to be discovered. Uh, I'm sure uh, William Rudolph, my good friend, is probably, even though he's already written his book on Bodichamp, he's probably still considering it a work in progress, uh, turning over stones at every possible chance. But relative to other artists of his day, there was there is more uh, extant uh, documentation of Bodichamp's life and work uh, than some of his contemporaries. So he had all of these things going for him, and he was one of the uh, few artists working in the uh, Deep South that was mentioned in the one of the earliest histories of American art, namely William Dunlap's History of the Rise and Progress of the Arts of Design in the United States, which was published in 1834. In that, uh, in that book, Dunlap calls Vaudichamp, quote, a good painter and a gentleman, and he noted that he earned his fortune in New Orleans, taking in uh, $30,000 in his first three winters alone, which is the equivalent of about $600,000 today. So he was quite a successful artist. Now, in his work on Vaudichamp, uh, William Rudolph uh, writes, quote, after his death, Vaudichamp slipped, slipped into obscurity, his career meriting only brief flickers of interest, end quote. I propose to you today that uh, in comparison with other artists of the same period, those brief flickers are more like huge floodlights. Vaudichamp uh, received much more attention uh, than his contemporaries, and, and that has continued to be uh, the case uh, to this day. Uh, one of the earliest uh, major reconsiderations of, uh, or considerations, I shouldn't say reconsideration, considerations of Vaudichamp's uh, work uh, was the exhibition that was organized by the Louisiana State Museum in 1967. Uh, it was a relatively modest exhibition, only 35 portraits. Uh, one of the barriers that scholars face uh, in researching uh, art, particularly portraiture, uh, in the Deep South is that Southerners tend to hold on to their family pictures much more than Yankees do. And I say this as someone who spent 11 years in Connecticut. 
Uh, it's, it can be hard to get access to some of these things. I'm, I'm very grateful that there are families in New Orleans that have seen fit to, to give things to the historic New Orleans collection and uh, the New Orleans Museum of Art and the Louisiana State Museum because it gives scholars something uh, to study. But also, uh, families have been forthcoming allowing scholars like me and William Rudolph and Jesse Pesch into their homes, and that makes all the difference in the world. But that, uh, that early flicker or spotlight uh, of interest, depending on who you believe, uh, really set the stage for Vaudechamp's uh, rediscovery by scholars. And um, it was in Jesse Pesch's uh, Art of the Old South, which is a seminal work uh, for the study of uh, art and architecture uh, throughout uh, the South, not just the Deep South. Vaudechamp uh, received uh, significant attention uh, that was published in 1983, and later that same year, Painting in the South uh, was organized uh, by the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond. It appeared in New Orleans between uh, December of 84 and February of 85, and that exhibition included Beauchamp as well, and Jesse Pesch was a major uh, contributor to that uh, exhibition catalog. Now, the two portraits by Beauchamp that seem to have commanded the most attention are these two, and pretty good choices. You can see why uh, Jesse Pesch and other scholars repeatedly use these two fine examples uh, of his work. Uh, they are intriguing, uh, they are colorful, uh, and you, you want to know more about this artist just by their, their uh, really commanding appearance. Well, these two, I, these two portraits received so much attention that I think it was rather at the expense of other portraits by Avodashamp, and that's something that's changed due to recent scholarship. Uh, the uh, portrait on the left received so much attention that it even entered the popular imagination of one artist. Some of you probably knew John Burton Harder, uh, with, uh, here with the beautiful Vodashamp portrait as the background for his own self-portrait. But I think that uh, we're now understanding that Bodichon's body of work uh, consists of far more than just two portraits. There are other uh, portraits by Bodichon that deserve a place in the limelight, uh, namely this really uh, quite stunning uh, portrait of uh, William Charles Claiborne II. Uh, and it's, uh, I think it's a quite a fitting cover for William Rudolph's uh, recent publication published by the Historic New Orleans Collection which I noticed is available <laughs> at the desk out there, if any of you uh, care to read it. It's a great read, very interesting. Um, but William Rudolph's more recent scholarship gives us a, a more, much more rich and textured understanding of Vaudechamp's uh, Paris training and work and patronage. And additionally, his uh, scholarship uh, has given us a new poster child, uh, as you see here, uh, for Vaudechamp, um, but also it has helped to place Vaudechamp's work in the greater canon of American art. And I submit to you as evidence of this the fact that after uh, William Rudolph's book was published in 2007, the following year, the Dallas Museum of Art acquired a work by Vaudechamp to hang in its permanent uh, collection. So this means that the broader uh, community of American art is not viewing Vaudechamp any longer as simply a regional artist or a French artist in New Orleans, but that Vaudechamp 
has found its place in the larger community of American portraitists, and it's hanging you know, along those, uh, alongside the likes of Thomas Sully, for example, or Charles Wilson Peale. So he has arrived, so to speak. Uh, there are other, uh, other French artists working in New Orleans who have uh, received maybe not as much attention as Vaudechamp, but a good, good deal more attention uh, than some of their contemporaries outside of, uh, of the Crescent City. One great example is uh, Jacques Amman. Now, strictly speaking, uh, he was uh, not French by birth. Uh, he was born in Maastricht, which at that time was part of Belgium. Uh, was part of uh, Belgium until 1839. He studied in France and exhibited in the salons uh, from 1831 to 1837, and even knew Vaudechamp. They traveled uh, on the same ship in 1837. Um, he arrived in New Orleans by 1836 and stayed here for, for approximately uh, two decades. On the left, I'm showing you a self-portrait of 1845, and on the right, uh, a really important uh, portrait of Andrew Jackson, which was painted on the occasion of the 25th anniversary of the Battle of New Orleans. And what I love particularly about this portrait is it's not just a bust view. You get uh, his, whole, his whole body in wonderful uh, interior details as well. So it's full of bells and whistles. Another uh, French-born artist to garner uh, significant attention is Alfred Boisseau, uh, who was uh, born in Paris and probably trained under Paul de la Roche. <laughs> I'm having problems with my French. <laughs> and uh, he exhibited in the salons uh, in Paris from 1842 to 1848, but he was in New Orleans by 1845 and didn't remain uh, quite as long as Amans, only remained until about uh, 1849. And he probably came because of his brother, who was uh, secretary to the French council in this city. Um, these Indians that he's depicted here are believed to be Choctaw, and it's been suggested that these are Choctaw Indians on the way to the French market. If you read period accounts of the French market, apparently Choctaw Indians, uh, both buying and selling uh, goods, were a, a common fixture there at that time. And uh, one last word on, uh, on Boisseau. Uh, Pesch called Boisseau a restless individual, and indeed he seems to have been, uh, after leaving New Orleans, uh, he spent time in Cleveland, uh, and he advertised uh, there as an artist, a portrait painter, and a daguerreotypist. And he later traveled to Montreal, and as late as 1877, uh, was in Alaska. So probably got more more mileage uh, under his feet than most of his contemporaries. Uh, another uh, artist, uh, contemporary, is uh, Hippolyte Sebron, who was born in France. And I'm showing you uh, what may be thought of as his defining work, uh, certainly the most published of, of any of his paintings. Uh, he was born in France and exhibited at the salons between 1831 and 1878. Uh, he traveled. Uh, in, within the United States between 1849 and 1855, and in addition to visiting Louisiana and painting uh, here in New Orleans, he also uh, spent time in New York. Uh, and I thought with a hot day like this, maybe we could all 
use a look at uh, one of his New York pictures, uh, the Ni Niagara Falls in winter. Uh, I've been to see this painting firsthand in the Musée de Beaux-Arts in Rouen, and it's, I mean, it's spectacular, 54 by 83 inches, so very uh, large picture, and I think your, your body temperature drops a couple of degrees when you stand in front of it. Uh, he had a, a rather uh, remarkable uh, teacher. Uh, his teacher was none other than Louis Daguerre, uh, who, as you know, is the inventor of the daguerreotype. And they worked together on what were known as double-effect dioramas, which were uh, dioramas that consisted of, uh, of paintings done on uh, large sheets of calico, unprinted calico, and they could be moved to create special effects like the changing, changing weather, changing light, uh, etc. I, I, I don't know that that's the best explanation uh, of it, but I think I would need to see it uh, firsthand to understand it better myself. Um, his reputation in New Orleans seems to have preceded him, even though he didn't arrive until 1849. As early as 1847, newspapers here were discussing his work, uh, particularly these double effect. Uh, dioramas. Um, the first firm notice of uh, Cibran in uh, New Orleans doesn't appear until uh, 1851. Now, Pesch did an admirable uh, job covering a broad range of material over a broad spectrum of time and place, and it's because of her uh, groundbreaking work really getting the ball rolling uh, going into greater depth with New Orleans material, because after all, this is the city in which she lived. But she gave us a nice uh, springboard, uh, jumping off point, where scholars were able to, to pick up the baton and run with it and really create their own regional uh, histories. And so in the years that follow uh, the art of the Old South and painting in the South, what we have are various publications that focus in on the art of one particular state. Uh, the first of these uh, is Estelle Curtis Pennington's Downriver, Currents of Style in Louisiana Painting, published in 1991. Not long thereafter, Made in Alabama appeared, The State Legacy, organized uh, an exhibition and a very meaty publication uh, organized by the Birmingham Museum of Art. Uh, the chief curator in charge of that uh, project is Brighton Adams. Uh, who I'm also very indebted to uh, for uh, the content of my talk today, but also uh, Daniel Brooks will be speaking to us uh, tomorrow, uh, played a large role in that exhibition and, and uh, contributed an excellent essay to the catalog. And then uh, four years later, Mississippi uh, finally got the attention it deserved. Patty Carr Black, uh, who's the leading uh, historian of Mississippi art, published Art in Mississippi, 1720. To 1980. So finally, uh, there were uh, histories, I won't say complete histories, but an attempt at more or less complete surveys of uh, the arts in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. That has set the stage, though, for uh, what I think has to come next, which are individual uh, histories of individual artists. Like I said, New Orleans is already light years uh, ahead of uh, other locations in that we have a wonderful uh, monograph on Bodachamp. I think the same needs to be done for some of the artists that I'm about to, to share with you. Now, 
taking things back uh, to an earlier point, uh, early on there was a French presence in the visual arts outside of uh, outside of uh, Louisiana and New Orleans. This is probably the earliest example of any French depiction of uh, Biloxi that I can find uh, by Jean-Baptiste Michel Le Bouteau, uh, which I believe you showed uh, in your talk earlier, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and this is uh, a drawing from uh, 1720. Uh, similarly, we have a, a profile uh, of Fort Condé at Mobile from 1725, which was done by Adrien de Poget, even though it's artfully rendered, I wouldn't necessarily put this uh, in the same category as, a, as an easel painting. Uh, it was made for a very different purpose. Uh, Poget was, a, uh, was an engineer uh, who uh, laid out not only uh, New Orleans, but also Mobile. Really, the, the first fine artist um, that one finds, or one of the earliest uh, fine artists that one finds uh, working uh, outside of, of New Orleans, I should say fine artists of French origin working outside of uh, New Orleans and Louisiana, is uh, John James Audubon, uh, who we see here in the left in a, a portrait of 1826. And on the right, I'm showing you an original work by Audubon in the permanent collection of the Birmingham Museum of Art, one of the few outside of the New York Historical Society. Um, Audubon had easy access uh, to the region by virtue of the Mississippi River, so it made his travels uh, into Mississippi uh, to find new and rare uh, species of birds uh, relatively easy. Uh, so his travels in Mississippi are relatively well documented. Less well documented is the time that he may have spent in Alabama. There are records uh, in the uh, in the city archives of Mobile that indicate that he did spend time uh, in Alabama, uh, namely on Dauphin Island, just outside. It's the barrier island for the Bay of Mobile. Um, this is this is a part of his story that I think needs to be explored uh, in greater detail. We just have the mere mention of a trip to Dauphin Island. We don't know exactly what he did there or what species of birds he may have uh, been interested in studying there. So it's an it's a, uh, open question uh, for future research. Now, while Audubon was in New, or New Orleans, and obviously that's one of the best documented uh, parts of his uh, career, uh, he sought the advice of a man named John Vanderlyn. John Vanderlyn, I want to mention in particular because he was the first major American-born painter to seek training in France, which set him apart uh, from his counterparts. At that time, the vote was still to go to, to England and study, uh, study at the Royal Academy and study uh, the earlier artists going to England were studying with the likes of Benjamin West, and uh, John Singleton Copley, um, but that was still very much the vogue. And so Vanderlyn broke with the trend, studied in Paris, and uh, received a lot of critical attention. This particular painting, uh, Caius Marius Amid the Ruins of Carthage, uh, won him a gold medal uh, at the Salon of 1808, presented to him by Napoleon himself. Uh, so he was a cause celeb in Paris, and his uh, fame was well known on both sides of the Atlantic. And so it's not surprising that Audubon, learning of Vanderlyn's arrival uh, in this city, 
uh, where he had a small exhibition of his work, would seek out uh, the elder artist and uh, ask for his advice. Well, be careful what you wish for. In Audubon's diaries, he wrote about the encounter initially quite, uh, and was quite disappointed. He talked about how Vanderlyn made him wait, made him wait for 30 minutes. And then he wrote, quote, after showing him an album of his own work, he spoke of the beautiful coloring and good positions and told me that he would, with pleasure, give me a certificate of his having inspected them. And he underscores inspected. Are all men of talents fools and rude purposely or naturally? I think their relations did uh, eventually warm up. Uh, as, as the diary entry goes on, um, he writes about Vanderlyn giving him an engraving after one of his other masterpieces, Ariadne Asleep on the Island of Naxos, and uh, was, was grateful to have a uh, letter of introduction after all. But I think that uh, it wasn't quite the meeting he had hoped for initially, and he wasn't really seeking just a, a seal of approval uh, from Vanderlyn. Now, I will just mention Vanderlyn, uh, one last footnote, Vanderlyn's uh, fame continued to grow in this country, and I think that it's this, uh, the fact that Vanderlyn was one of the few artists commissioned by the U.S. Congress uh, to paint a mural-sized canvas for the Capitol Rotunda uh, added greatly to his fame, but also added interest uh, for other American artists to, for studying France. The fact that Vanderlyn had trained there and had been so successful, I think, excited uh, interest in, in future artists in studying in, in France as well, so he can be credited with that. Now, now I want to move on, since we've, we've gotten the well-known uh, French-born artists uh, out of the way, so now I'd like to talk about uh, some lesser-known artists. Uh, among them, uh, an artist by the name of uh, Louis-Joseph Bahin, uh, who paint worked in uh, Mississippi. Uh, he was born in 1830 in Armentières, France, and exhibited in Marseille from 1832 to 1843. Uh, he was awarded uh, first prize by the Society of Arts in Paris, and when he came to this country, and it's uh, uncertain exactly the date that he came, but originally uh, he set up uh, a studio in New Orleans. This was sometime in the late 1840s. By the early 1850s, though, his family, he and his family, moved to, to Natchez. And we can speculate the reason for this. I think there were so many uh, well-trained French artists working in New Orleans in the middle of the 19th century that I think sometimes it's better to be a big fish in a small pond. Now, I don't want me to say that Natchez was exactly a small pond. There was a lot of wealth there and a lot of opportunity uh, for a young artist with a family support, to support to make a good living there. But it was simply a matter of a, having less competition in Natchez than what he faced in New Orleans. Now, the largest extant collection uh, of uh, Bahin's work is uh, owned by the Auburn Garden Club in Natchez, though I understand they have sold at least one, if not several, uh, of his paintings. In addition to portraits, uh, he also did landscapes, biblical scenes, uh, and so I'm showing you here a beautiful portrait that came up recently at auction in Ohio 
a young boy with a dog and squirrel. And then this is the work by which he's probably best known, and that used to hang uh, in the Garden Club, but is now in the collection of the Morris Museum in Augusta, and it's uh, called Natchez Under the Hill, also known as Sunset on the Mississippi. Another uh, artist of French extraction, though I'm cheating here a little bit, uh, just like a man was born in Belgium. Uh, Edward Troy was actually born in Switzerland, but in uh, French-speaking Switzerland, he was born in Lausanne, and his uh, birth name was Edouard de Troyes, Americanized to Anglicized to Edward Troy. Uh, he uh, is arrived in this country. Uh, in the 1830s, and he is first listed in the Philadelphia City Directory in 1833. He worked as a staff artist for Sargent's Magazine, uh, but his job was to go on sketching trips of the uh, southern United States. Uh, eventually, he decided to move, uh, move down to the south with his family. Uh, he spent a lot of time initially in Kentucky and Virginia, where he painted uh, prized livestock, and, and especially thoroughbred racehorses. But from 1849 to 1855, he taught drawing and French at Spring Hill College in Mobile. So I'm showing you his uh, self-portrait of 1852 that was painted while he was living uh, in Mobile. And uh, this was actually in the Made in Alabama exhibition. It had been in deepest storage at Yale University. Uh, was in fairly rough state of repair, and Yale was not going to lend the uh, painting to the show, uh, but the Birmingham Museum of Art agreed to have it restored uh, to its uh, present uh, condition. I think it's a painting I'd like to borrow again uh, soon. I, I think they've got it in storage at Yale right now. Uh, but he did live in uh, Mobile from 1849 to 1855. I'm showing you on the left the daguerreotype in the archives of American art. And uh, a, an image of uh, Spring Hill College, which uh, this is the original main building that was built in 1831, so the building in which he taught. And he lived with his wife and daughter on the Dog River, in, just outside of Mobile. But he maintained a studio uh, in downtown Mobile on the west side of the public square between Dauphin and St. Emanuel Streets. And over 350 paintings are known by Troy, primarily of uh, thoroughbred racehorses, but also other prized livestock, cattle and sows and, and the like, and also religious subjects and portraits. I'm showing you uh, one of his better-known uh, portraits of Brigadier General John Hartwell Pope II, who served in the War of 1812. And this uh, really interesting portrait, I think, of a man named, uh, who was known by the name Parson Dick, and he was a groom uh, at the Forks of Cypress uh, Plantation in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Uh, later in his career, after leaving Mobile and traveling extensively, uh, the Troy family ultimately settled uh, in Huntsville. And so they would have been uh, relatively close to, to Muscle Shoals. Um, the, the individual portrayed in this uh, work uh, was uh, purchased as a slave here in New Orleans. He was uh, purchased by the planter James Jackson of uh, Huntsville. And the reason, uh, the reason uh, for his purchase, as I've read it, is that uh, Parson Dick already had uh, a reputation for having an incredible talent with horses. 
He was a natural-born horseman, and uh, Mr. Jackson needed a good groom on his plantation up in Muscle Shoals. Uh, Troy visited the plantation, painted this work, and James Jackson liked it so well that he asked to buy it from Troy. And it was such a beloved portrait that it, it continued to hang uh, in the hallway of that home well into the 20th century and still is owned by the family, though it's on loan uh, to a local restaurant uh, at present. Now, what happened to the sitter in this uh, portrait uh, is unknown. In uh, early 1865, uh, Parson Dick asked uh, Mrs. Jackson to visit a woodlawn, which is a nearby plantation where Parson Dick's wife lived. And he, uh, as was his privilege as the, the head groom, he took a good horse, and no one ever saw him again. And, and, but his wife remained at the neighboring plantation, so they did not run away together, and it's assumed that maybe uh, marauders uh, captured him. Now, Edward Troy probably had uh, no way of knowing that he was not the first uh, painter of horses in the state of Alabama. And this gets me into a little bit into uh, some of the, the other influences in uh, art on the Gulf Coast, namely an English influence and a, a German influence, particularly uh, in Alabama. Uh, in 1841, an artist by the name of W.S. Hedges who had uh, traveled throughout the Caribbean and painted uh, in Guyana, arrived in Mobile and painted this horse racing scene. Uh, it is, uh, depicts a race that occurred at Jacksonville. Jacksonville is a now lost community which used to exist just outside of uh, Mobile proper. Uh, for some years, people used to think this was present-day Jacksonville in northwestern, or, sorry, northeastern Alabama, but you can see the royal palms in the background. Uh, I don't think there are any royal palms in northeastern Alabama. Someone tried. I, I read in one letter someone tried to explain they were they were young pine trees. <laughs> I don't think so. But this this seems to have been a singular uh, occurrence. There are only five works known uh, by W. S. Hedges, and uh, only one of them depicts Alabama, though it happens to be a pretty spectacular genre painting. Now, we assume that he probably made sketches and then took this back to his studio. Uh, whether that was in, in England or someplace else, we know so little about the artist. Uh, the reason why we think uh, it was completed in, in the studio is that he got one critical aspect of the painting wrong. Notice which way the horses are running. In England, horses run the opposite direction on the track than they do in America. But back to, back to the French influence. There are, in fact, other uh, French painters known to have worked in Mississippi and Alabama. The unfortunate thing is that for many of them, we have very little uh, evidence of what their work looked like. Sometimes we only have uh, notices in newspapers. Uh, in the case of this man, Inman en Fleur, uh, we have a prospectus that he published in Columbia, South Carolina in 1852. Uh, Inman Enfleur was uh, French-born, uh, born in 1784, and he traveled uh, throughout the American South from 1835 to 1851, offering a six-lesson course in painting and drawing from nature. He's recorded in the 1850 census as living uh, in Montgomery, and uh, it's 
and it is published in a Montgomery uh, paper that he, quote, received instruction for five years from the best teachers that England and France could offer. Now, I want to read you just briefly uh, something from his prospectus, Improved Plans of Teaching, Drawing, Coloring, and etc. Uh, it is written, quote, Mr. Enfleur is prepared to take pupils in drawing, etc., from the simplest to the highest mathematical branches. He teaches upon systems the result of more than 20 years' study in bringing them to their present perfection, and promises unequivocally unequivocally that all who take drawing lessons, even the first six lessons, shall draw from nature, understand perspective, shading, and all that is necessary far better than he did himself, after receiving instruction for five years from the best teachers that England and France could produce. No such childish assistance as monochromatic or theorem is made use of. It is a plan that the best artists are invariably anxious to become acquainted with. He begs you to call at his room and see what pupils have affected. Taste, so-called, is not required. <laughs> Good common sense and a desire to be acquainted with the art is all that he asks on the part of a pupil. With most people, drawing is considered one of the most difficult sciences. At his room they will see that it is truly the most easy, and not the tenth part so difficult of acquirement as writing. Mr. H, or should I say Mr. H, Monsieur H, is aware that it is the custom of the country for teachers to call and solicit patronage. In declining to pursue this practice, he trusts he may not be considered as deficient in respect, and he most cordially invites you all to call at his room. Mr. H does not receive children as pupils. The most effective means for introducing drawing into a family is by instruction from parents who have taken a course of lessons from Mr. H. A lesson may be taken at any hour of the day or by candlelight, two can attend at the same hour, and any who distrust their own ability are offered as a trial, the first lesson gratuitously." End quote. So maybe this also helps us explain why there aren't uh, any extant works by Edmund Enfleur. Um, he did not seek patronage, but rather sought to teach uh, art instead. Another uh, artist who has slipped away into obscurity uh, is a man known as uh, Macapin Andrew. Um, in 1849, he advertised in Mobile uh, his pastel or colored crayon portraits costing $5 for a bust and $10 for a full-length portrait. He was also known as a panoramist. Uh, he lived in New Orleans and Mobile, uh, alterna uh, alternatively, between, uh, or in 1831. Uh, and in 1850, he had been working for a year or more on a diorama of the uh, principal cities along the mail route from New Orleans to New York. And according to a newspaper account of that year, he, he had gotten as far as Montgomery. Unfortunately, uh, there is not much extant work left. I'm scouring the internet and looking at various uh, uh, digitized archives uh, reveals nothing. The only uh, extant work that I found by him, and I'd be curious to know afterwards if anyone knows of anything else, was this work that came up recently uh, at Skinner Auction in Boston. Uh, but he was a restless soul as well. Um, the 
A dictionary of artists in Ohio between 1787 and 1900 records that he also worked in the Midwest, um, in cities including Cleveland, St. Louis, Detroit, and Springfield, uh, as well as LaSalle, Illinois. This is primarily in the 1850s. In September 1855, the Cleveland Leader reported that each diorama viewing was accompanied by music and singing of the highest order, and that, quote, Monsieur Andrew delighted the audience by singing the famous Marseillaise as only a Frenchman can. <laughs> now, there are, to be sure, this is where the, the visuals of the French artists leave off, because, there, like I said, there are some artists for whom we only have written uh, evidence. Uh, there was a uh, Mr. Engel from Paris who advertised as a portrait miniature painter in Huntsville in 1818. So, arguably one of the, the earliest uh, French artists, French-born artists, to work in, this, in Alabama. In 1856, a Monsieur de Ensling invited, quote, all lovers of the beautiful to examine his miniatures, also daguerreotype, uh, paintings of the deceased or absent persons are copied. And then this brings us to something which has been mentioned uh, earlier uh, today, the vine and olive colony uh, in Marengo County, Alabama. I think there is a possibility, though we have not found anything yet, that there may have been works painted by uh, several of the colonists uh, there. Um, occasionally I get calls at the Birmingham Museum of Art from folks in Marengo County asking me to examine uh, landscapes uh, that are clearly of the age uh, of the, the colony, but yet there's no documentation or evidence that could firmly say uh, that this, this was done by one of the Vinyanalo colonists, and then sometimes the landscape is so indistinct that we don't even know if it was in fact uh, a depiction of a Marengo County scene. It could be another, uh, another area in the Black Belt. But I just want to at least raise the possibility that there might be other work out there yet to be discovered. There are some visualizations of the Vine and Olive Colony, uh, this engraving, uh, for example. Um, but these, what uh, visual evidence of the Vine and Colony that does exist was done by artists who never saw the Vine and Olive Colony firsthand. And that's why we have uh, palm trees in the background of Aigleville, Eagle City, the original, one of the original settlements. Um, there are, those of you who have visited Marengo County know that there's not a, a palm tree in sight, at least not native uh, to that place. And then also there is this uh, wallpaper, uh, panoramic wallpaper from uh, 1820 depicting Aigleville uh, as well, but again, uh, with the palm tree in the far uh, background, in the upper uh, detail, uh, done by an artist that uh, was probably going only by written accounts uh, of that place. So who were the, art, who were the uh, professionally trained artists working in uh, Alabama if they weren't French? Well, the Germans seem to have had a greater uh, hold on Mobile and the rest of the state uh, than just about uh, any other group. I'm showing you here the work of S. Philip Rumer, uh, who was from Bavaria. There's also Wilhelm or William Fry and Nicola Marshall, who I'll speak about in greater detail in just a moment. Why weren't there more French artists in Alabama? Well, a lot of that has to do with population. 
uh, New Orleans. For most of the history of New Orleans and Mobile, New Orleans almost always had 15 times approximately the population of Mobile. Um, to give you a sense, uh, by 1830, New Orleans was one of the 10 largest cities in the United States, and it stayed in the top 10 uh, until 1880. This was the last time New Orleans was in the top 10 most populated cities uh, in the country. Um, in 1830, New Orleans had 46,082 people. Mobile had 3,194. So as an artist and an artist wanting to make a living and an artist who is a native French speaker, probably made much more sense if you were going to come to this region to go to New Orleans than it did to Mobile. It was just simply greater uh, patronage there. The, uh, the Germans uh, seem to have taken an interest uh, in the city, and I know that if, when you read accounts of, uh, of New Orleans after the Louisiana Purchase, especially by uh, natives, the uh, Anglo-Saxon influence, and really the Anglo-Saxon invasion, uh, is often spoken of uh, quite derisively uh, by, by native New Orleans. And uh, in Mobile, that really meant Anglo-Saxon, an Anglo-Saxon influence uh, quite literally. The Germans uh, seem to have really embraced that city. Uh, not just Philip Rumer, I'm showing here, you hear of Philip Rumer's masterpiece, uh, Choctaw Bell in the collection of Washington and Lee University. But uh, finally, I want to conclude with Nicola Marshall. If there is an analog uh, for Vodachamp in the state of Alabama, it would be the painter Nicola Marshall. Nicola Marshall had the best training of any painter working on Alabama soil. Uh, he trained at the Dusseldorf Academy and came to this country in 1848. Uh, he arrived at the port of, Mo of New Orleans, but uh, eventually, uh, within a matter of months, made his way to Mobile. Stayed in Mobile only briefly. Uh, he had the chance to teach uh, in Marion, Alabama, at the Marion Female Seminary. Now, Marion, which is just a, a small little town now, uh, back in the uh, middle of the 19th century, had a reputation as a great center of learning. It was known as the Athens of the South, and it was home to five colleges. Uh, one of the colleges, Judson, uh, the, the president of Judson, Milo P. Jewett, uh, made such a reputation for himself that none other than Matthew Vassar, the brewing millionaire, called upon him to found a little school in Poughkeepsie, New York, uh, which is quite famous to this day. It was founded by a gentleman from Marion, Alabama. Uh, Marshall, uh, after arriving uh, in Alabama, uh, became successful rather quickly. Um, he had very little competition, even though there were other artists uh, working in Alabama at the same time, Rumor and Fry, as I've already mentioned, uh, he had the best training, therefore caught the eyes of the best families. So the, the oldest families, particularly old families uh, from the Black Belt, from Selma and Demopolis, you'll find uh, many examples of uh, Marshall's work still in their homes. I want to just read you briefly the notice that appeared uh, in a handbill published by the Marian Female Seminary when he uh, arrived on the faculty in 1851. It reads, Mr. Marshall is a native of Germany, a pupil of the celebrated Dusseldorf Academy, 
and for accuracy of drawing, boldness of conception, and richness of coloring in oil, water, or body colors, is unsurpassed by any artist in the country. Mr. M is a very superior performer on the guitar and violin, and uh, also assists Professor Daly on the piano and harp. He speaks English fluently, correctly, and with purity, and is highly competent to teach the German and French languages." End quote. Sounds like he was a jack-of-all-trades. He's doing a little bit of everything on the faculty of that uh, small school. Now, I'm showing you uh, a few examples in closing of Marshall's work. I could easily give a, 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 another hour-long talk on Marshall, but that would be, that would be for a, a different time, a different symposium. I'm currently working on a book uh, on Marshall's work, which I hope will be published within the next few years. Uh, one of the things he was most popular for were uh, morning portraits of the type that you see on the left, where you have the, the bust of the deceased floating in the ethereal haze, suggesting the afterlife. Uh, he also uh, depicted, as I said, many of Alabama's leading citizens. This is a portrait of Sotella Pope, who is a, a well-known Alabama poet in the antebellum years. The portrait of Sarah uh, Rebecca Robbins, which currently hangs in the uh, Birmingham Museum of Art. And there are always lots of clues in his portraits as to, as to the narrative. Uh, he designed his own frame, frames, and here you'll see that in the corner of the frames uh, are morning glories. Morning glories are associated with the death of a child because they blossom and then they wither very quickly uh, in, the, in the sunlight. And so it Given the flower in the corners of this original frame and the fact that she is in partial mourning, uh, wearing all black, with the lily of the valley uh, on her brooch, on her Pietra Dura brooch, also associated with mourning, uh, we can assume that she's in, mour in mourning for a deceased child. The same is true of this portrait uh, of Cornelia Hardy. I also want to mention that Nicola Marshall worked in Mississippi as well. He had a studio in uh, in Marion, Alabama, but at the same time he had an active studio in Columbus, Mississippi, and many Columbus families still have his work in their homes. I've seen or know of at least uh, 12 examples in Columbus, and I imagine there are many more. Uh, this woman, Cornelia Hardy, died at the age of 18, and everything in the portrait, not just the ethereal haze, but all of the floral imagery speaks uh, to her passing. Uh, we have, again, around the spandrel of the frame, the morning glory associated with the death of a, of a child or someone young. Uh, at her chest, there's a spray of forget-me-nots, so a literal command to the viewer to remember her. And then finally, in the corner of the frame, we have a, a flower which is a little hard to identify. It is uh, in the geranium family. It's the geranium theum, which is commonly known as the morning widow because its color is such a deep purple that it's almost black, the, the color of mourning. Um, another word on his practice, while he did uh, portraits from life, of course, and from photographs, he also, as was common practice in the 19th century, occasionally painted from death. And he most likely painted uh, Cornelia Hardy uh, after she had expired and went into the front parlor of the family's home where her body would have been uh, uh, lying uh, in repose and uh, painted it there. And that accounts for the difference uh, between the photograph 
and her likeness. She looks much older, her face is much fuller. The photograph was taken only months before she died. But the difference in, the, in physical appearance, um, I won't go into detail, but we know what you know, embalming practices or the lack thereof were uh, in this country in you know, the 1870s. So enough, enough about that. Um, sometimes his uh, posthumous portraits included uh, extraneous details and symbolism, like an angel, uh, in this case the Hale child, which is an inflection in Aniston. And he also is widely credited with designing the Confederate flag and Confederate uniform, the recent research uh, done by Bob Bradley of the uh, Alabama State Archives suggests that he was not, in fact, the designer of the Confederate flag, only the designer of the uh, flag for the Marion Light Infantry. And then finally, I'll, I'll leave you with this very uh, charming uh, portrait of a young girl with her cat, which uh, hangs in the Morris uh, Museum. Um, I, I don't mean to suggest any stylistic similarity between Bodichon and Marshall, only that uh, it was clear in both cases that uh, for their respective uh, states and regions, they were uh, the, the biggest thing in town. Uh, and so he, he can be thought of as our Bodichon in the state of Alabama. So with that, I thank you very much.